The Inland Northwest Artisan Grains podcast chronicles the emergence of landrace, heritage, and other unique grains in the local food landscape. We are your hosts, Allie Schulteis and Colette DePhelps. Join us as we talk to farmers, millers, bakers, and brewers about their journey into the world of artisan grains. This podcast is a project of University of Idaho Extension's Northern District Community Food Systems Program. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for the 14th episode of Field to Flower. On the last episode, we talked to Jeremy Bunch and Eric Odberg about what it takes to grow and mill shepherd's grain flour. Today, we are joined by Patrick Slater, who bakes with a mix of shepherd's grain and Harvest Ridge Organics flour. Patrick Slater and his wife, Janet Brewer, own and operate Crowbench Farm in Orofino, Idaho. For seven years, they focused on grass-fed beef. In the last year, they have transitioned their operation over to a market bakery specializing in sourdough country loaves that utilize local and regional flours. Patrick sells his loaves at local farmers markets under Idaho's cottage food rules. Idaho's food code allows individuals to prepare low-risk food products in their home and sell them direct to consumers at local farmers markets. This removes some of the barriers to entry that bakers and value-added producers can face when starting a small business. Patrick has been in the bread business for just a year and is excited to share what he has learned throughout the process. Let's join our conversation with Patrick Slater from Crowbench Farm. Well, if you could start off by please introducing yourself and telling us the story of Crowbench Farm, and that's both in its origin and what it looks like now. Sure. My name is Patrick Slater. My wife, Janet Brewer, and I moved here eight years ago to get out of California. We were very fortunate to find just a beautiful place on Crowbench Road, which was 35 acres, just about five miles outside of Orofino. So we love living here. We love being in Idaho. And our time here has has been a lot of change. We fell into the cattle business literally within weeks of getting here. There was no design on our part to do that. It just landed in our lap. So we, we did that for seven years and learned a lot and made a lot of mistakes. And Finally, we just tired of generating financial losses with the cows, so we decided to get out of them. And we got out primarily because of what was happening with soil drought conditions in 2021. Mm-hmm. And so the place that we grazed at where usually we got three to three and a half months, we got six weeks uh, in June, in May and June in 2021. And I was following the lack of soil moisture and what was going on and we thought this is the best time possible to get rid of the cows if we're going to do it. So we did. Turned out to be a lucky move in hindsight. It was through that process that we came to the bread business. My wife Jan was going to all the farmers markets to try and sell our grass-fed beef because we were getting out of the business. And so she was successful at that over the month of June. Then the most of June She'd say, well, why don't you give me four of your bread loaves and I'll just put them on the table here and see what happens. And so she sold four that week and eight the next week and 12 the week after that and 16 the week after that. And then we'd sold all the beef. And so she says, here's the bread business. Take it around. So that's what I did. And so I basically took it over and started selling at farmers markets in July of last year. And similar thing, there was much more demand than I ever thought there might be for it. What markets are you selling at? Orofino, Camii, and Kuski were the ones that I was selling at just last year. And 
I think my total for, from 1st of July through the end of December was 800 loaves for five months, just going to those farmers markets. And so I started trying to go to larger events. I signed into that thing that uh, Christina Clark from Lewiston puts together, that fall extravaganza thing. It's a Lewiston fairground. So and that was the most I'd ever sold before. And it's just slowly, uh, and maybe some, slowly some days and others, it's just growing very rapidly right now. In terms of how I, I came to the grains that I'm at right now, I had spent a couple of years using rye flour to go with the white flour and just wasn't happy with what I was getting in terms of air in the loaves. And so I tried the whole grain wheat berries and I started buying from Harvest Ridge Organics and I noticed a, a fairly significant difference in what was happening with the flour when I was trying to get a rise out of it. And I, I attributed it to the, the Harvest Ridge Organics. So then I guess where things really started this year, um, I went to the Moscow 1912 building to try and get a juried spot on the Moscow Farmer's Market. Well, the first time it didn't go very well. But an interesting thing did happen because one of the ladies who was a juror in that tried some of my bread. I'd asked her earlier in the day before the jury competition as to whether or not I could uh, be on the, the, the monthly market that they have in March. And she said, no, we're, we're all full up. We don't, we don't have any more space. And, and so she came back after she tasted the bread and said, you have to be here Saturday. And so I was there. That turned out to be very successful, sold everything I brought. And then even though I, I failed at my first attempt at the farmer's market, it was my discovery of shepherd's grain that actually became my salvation for that. Because one of the things that I failed at when I went to the jury competition was I didn't have a, a custody chain for the flour I was buying. I did for the stuff I buy from Harvest Ridge Organics. But I, I was buying an ADM product called Crown Best Bakers that I was buying at Winco. And so I called the, the gentleman up in Spokane who runs the Cheney facility that makes that Crown Best Bakers and told them what I needed. I needed a chain of custody, basically, from beginning to end of the flower. He says, well, I can't give you that. You know, mostly we, we use this wheat out of Cheney, which would have met the Moscow Farmer's Market's criteria. But he said, sometimes we have to buy wheat from Montana to get what we want. So that's really odd. So that's when I started looking around and I discovered uh, Shepherd's Grain with their labeling on the side of the bag that can be matched on their website to a grower. So I went back for a second time for the Moscow market and put in the whole chain of custody I was using. I had a little plaque that had the picture of one of the growers and who they were and what Shepherd's Grain was. And anyway, I made it into the market the second time around. Patrick, I was saying that's a great story about how you actually found Shepherd's Grain. And I think the Moscow Farmer's Market is a little bit unique in that it does have a jury process for value-added products. So for our listeners, the way the Moscow Farmer's Market works is if you want to be a vendor at our market and you're doing a value-added product, or if you're doing a craft product, which is not a food product, you have to go through a juried process that has a rubric of criteria. And part of that criteria is where your product is being sourced. 
So it looks at a lot of different attributes of your product from your market setup to how your product tastes and the texture, um, the quality. But that sourcing piece is a really important component for our market in Moscow because it's really focused on supporting local and regional food systems and growers. So, yes, which 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 I uh, endorse fully. So that's exciting that you're not only using shepherd's grain flour, which is produced in the Northwest and primarily coming out of the Palouse region. You're also supporting Harvest Ridge Organics, which is a Lewiston, Idaho-based organic wheat farm. And so how did you find Harvest Ridge? Well, I started looking around for a whole wheat flour to blend in with my, when I'm making a starter or 11, I don't use just white flour. And so I find that I get a, a better rise. The, the flour, the, the whole batch is just much more vigorous. And so I started looking around and I ran across Harvest Ridge. And then I understood that they were, it was the Lindsay Creek family that owns Harvest Ridge. And so it's just, they were right where I needed somebody. They were, they had a really nice product. And they had a lot of it because they've got 100 acres of Idaho spring wheat that's organic. The organic side of it wasn't part of the Moscow jury criteria, but I really like the product. So I pay the premium price for it because I really like the product. Yes. I imagine that you did get points for Harvest Ridge and Shepherd's Grain as well in that jury process because sustainability is one of the criteria And so using an organic product and Shepherd's Green being a Food Alliance certified product as well brings that sustainability component. Yeah. And I'd I'd be remiss if I didn't say how much my wife has been such a wonderful support for me in this thing in terms of just helping me get going, getting me started with some of the first things I needed. You know, like, here's a Dutch oven, use this. (laughs) So it was just things like that. And and she comes up to the Moscow market with me just about every day that I go because it takes two of us to run that. So can we talk about a little bit more about your products and what is your baking style and what, what is it that you're making? I'm making what's called a rustic sourdough loaf. So I'm making a typical round, what what the bakers called a, a boule. So it's a round loaf. The fermentation process is really the difference in sourdough. I know there's one other vendor at Moscow that says he has sourdough, but it's not, it's not the type of sourdough that I use. There's only three ingredients in my bread, flour, water, and salt. So there's no store-bought yeast. There's, there's nothing else. And using the cast iron Dutch ovens inside a double wall oven, which is what I have, I get a really nice rise out of the bread, you know, just a big puffy rise that comes out of them inside the Dutch oven. And uh, that's basically indistinguishable from what you get out of a $75,000 steam on a commercial steam oven. So I remember having conversations with my wife, why do you need two ovens? Why do you need a double oven? And then I was the one who wound up using it. So she lets me know about that one pretty regular. (laughs) And how many loaves can you bake at a time? Uh, I can bake 32 at a time. Wow. So I can get, in, in terms of the oven, that's that's four batches of eight. You know, the, the ovens will hold eight Dutch ovens. The, the wall ovens will hold eight Dutch ovens. 
So I have to do four batches of eight to get to 32. And if I do that for four days, I can bake 128 loaves. And I have done that. It's not much fun. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, four days in a row baking sounds like a lot. <laughs> yeah. And how many on average do you sell at the farmer's market? I'm sure it depends on whether you're in Kamiai or Moscow, but. It certainly like, does. Yeah. <laughs> it varies. You know, I've had uh, 40 loaf days and I've had 60 loaf days. And I would imagine one of these days I'll have one that's quite a bit higher than that once it stops raining. Because yeah. every Saturday we've gone to the market this year, I think with the exception of one, it's just pounded rain. I don't blame the people in Moscow for not coming out for it because, you know, it was not, I didn't want to be there either. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. It has been such a cold and rainy spring. And yes. And of course, I don't know how it works out with the weather, but it seems like Saturday morning, it always has been raining, even if we haven't had rain in the afternoon or the day before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So but I'm, I'm looking at it this weekend and, you know, I'm, I'm excited to go because this looks like sunshine. It so will I'll, be be there. I'll be there wild. Saturday, so I'm, I'm baking a lot this week so I can go to Moscow. Absolutely. It will be wild and crazy this weekend. You'll be like, oh, this is what the market's like. Yeah. And then well, my my wife and I sold grass fed beef at the market in 2018 and 19, I believe. And then when we got out of the business last year, and then we showed up with bread instead of beef. So do you have some people that are like, uh, wait a minute, I thought you were raising cattle. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I've had just even this last Saturday, I had two people come up and ask, so do you have any, any beef anymore? It's like, no, I'm sorry, I don't. It was a happy day in many ways when we got rid of the cows finally. Yeah, that's when I met you, is when yeah. you had the cows and the hogs and the fodder yeah. system at, actually at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was one of those things we had the highest hopes for. But after four years of, of running it and, and just the amount of time it took, it took 45 minutes to an hour and a half every day, seven days a week. And, you know, at the end of it, we couldn't identify any difference in the animals whatsoever. They didn't lay more. They didn't grow faster. So it was a hard decision to make. But because the cows absolutely loved it, they would just rip those biscuits right out of the trailer that we had on. They wouldn't even wait for us to put them on the ground. It was They'd walk away from dairy grain and alfalfa to get that stuff. But they never even said thanks. (laughs) How rude. (laughs) Have you always been a baker? No. Well, I I baked a little bit when I lived up. I lived up in Alaska for 25 years. And uh, I started baking focaccia and some not real sourdough bread. Uh, I got one of those package starters, mm-hmm. and that's not really the way to do it. So the, the way to do the type of bread I make is is you make your own starter from the natural yeast that's in the atmosphere. And it takes about two or three weeks usually to do it. So I messed around with baking things up in the mid-80s in Alaska, and then um, came down here in when Jan and I met back in 2002, and didn't really do much with it. And then um, about five years ago, I just got tired of the breads that we were getting in the store. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll just do this myself. So I started off and it took me 
about two years once I started, once I said I wanted to make sourdough bread. It took me about two years and an awful lot of failed experiments. It's like, oh no, do I have to throw this one away too? <laughs> so it finally, and uh, ironically, Sean from the um, the grain shed, we were in, Jan comes in one day from, with one of her girlfriends and says, you have to go to this place. This place is just really amazing. These people are so deep in sourdough and you need to go talk to them. It's like, okay, great. So I go in there, and one of the things that I didn't have in my quiver at that point in time was what they call bread percentages. And one of the, it was the very thing I was grappling with very hard and getting nowhere, which was how do you scale a bread recipe? You know, it makes two loaves. How do you scale it so that it makes 40 loaves? You can't just multiply. I know you can because I tried it, and that's where I wanted throwing things away. So whatever you're making, the amount of flour is 100%, and everything else goes down from there. And so when, when Sean was gracious enough to give me a little of his time, and he told him I was trying to find a way to scale recipes, and he looked at me and says, well, you know about bread percentages, don't you? And I went, no, never heard of it. So that right there was how I, I came to be able to scale what I have now instead of just being onesies and twosies at a time. And I was very impressed with his operation and what he had going and, and the accountability. I talk about accountability. I mean, they have just an amazing process. I think they have about 35 acres of wheat, various different types of wheat, mostly heirloom wheat. But anyway, a lot of people helped me in a lot of ways on this. And so the people that buy my bread are, are the ones that make this tip possible. Yeah, that's what keeps blowing me away about these conversations is it really comes back to, especially in this area, like a couple core individuals that like sparked conversation or, you know, there was an acquaintance that was like, oh, have you talked to so-and-so? They're really into grains or whatever it is. And that's how these relationships start. And I mean, businesses come out of it. That's how the grain shed started. It was just people having beer, talking about grain, and then decided to go in together on a venture. So yeah, that's always incredible. When did you talk to Sean? And like, at what point did that lead to your transition into your operation as it is? Um, now? It was probably in 2016 or 2017. Okay. So we, we, you know, he, he was actually interested in buying some entire beef rounds, like a whole rear leg, because he wanted to make uh, brisket sandwiches. And so we were talking, I was going to sell them a, a whole leg. And, you know, and so we were, then we started talking about bread and beer and things like that. So I, I don't know if he would even remember me at this point, but, but he certainly helped me out at that point in time. And, you know, various other books that I've read and um, just talking with other bakers and how do you do this and how do you do that? And I've got to the point now where I'm much more polished than I was, but I'm still trying to improve, you know, like I just recently, uh, I, I wanted to increase the sour, more of the sourdough taste in the loaves. So I started looking up how to do that and modified my process a little bit to get more of that acidic taste, which is where the sour part comes from sourdough. And so I was successful. That did come out the way I wanted it. So it was just one thing at a time, just keep trying to, build a better mousetrap. Right. So did you have to then purchase like larger equipment when you scaled? Yeah, about uh, two years ago, you know, when, when I was I was mixing up six or seven bowls at a time, that was like 
two to four loaves per bowl. And so I'd stand there with my head down at the, at the counter and do six or eight of these bowls. And it took an hour and a half, two hours. And I literally couldn't pick my head up when I was done. So I finally broke down and bought a, a used Hobart, uh, the smallest one they make, but a Hobart bread mixer. Mm-hmm. And now it takes me about two and a half minutes to mix up eight loaves. And that is, that is the only mechanized piece I have. Everything else is done by hand. Then with your ovens, did you also have to purchase the ovens? Well, that was sort of providence. The the oven we had was um, not a very high-end oven at all. It was a range is what it was. So it had a single heating element down in the the oven part of it, and then it had a ceramic cooktop. Well, the, the heating element in the oven blew itself up, and so we had no oven. And so I started looking around, and we'd really liked the DCS equipment before we had it in our last house. And so I managed to find one on eBay that was uh, a scratch and dent type thing. And it wasn't much damage at all. And so, and it was about 75% off. And so they delivered it to me and we took care of what was wrong with it. And so now it, it sits in our oven, in our kitchen. Nice. So in Idaho, you are baking under our cottage food rules. Indeed I am, yes. What does that allow you to do? It allows me to keep things pretty simple. You know, if I get away, because I'm only using three ingredients, flour, water, salt, and the managing the fermentation process is where you get the rise and the flavor and all the good stuff comes from the fermentation but I've, I've learned from people through public health, Lane Burnett at uh, uh, Idaho Public Health here in Orofino. She helped me uh, earlier this year in terms of I had loaves without any paper bag on them or anything, just sitting in a wicker basket at the markets. And she said, well, you'd really be better off if you had them in some sort of a bag so that people aren't just coming up and touching them. So I, I took her advice there. And I, I mentioned to her that I had a friend who a couple of years before had asked me to make some rosemary jalapeno sourdough bread for. Him. And so I did. And she says, well, it's a good thing he asked you for it because you would have been in a totally different, you wouldn't be in a cottage industry anymore. And you would need to be working with a commercial kitchen, I believe is what she told me, if I started using things that could spoil like jalapenos. So she helped inform me on better practices which I've instituted in my practice here. I've called Nancy Becker up at public health in Idaho, in Moscow also, talked with her about it just because I was out of Orofino. I didn't know if there could be any statutes that I might need to meet if I'm in Moscow. So I had a a nice conversation with her. She said, no, you're just fine in the, you're still in the cottage business. And You know, if you start putting cheese in your bread, if you start anything perishable in your bread, it puts you into another category. And I'm I'm perfectly happy with it. So, you know, the public health people have informed me, the people in the jury uh, competitions have informed me, and all these people have added to my joy in what I'm doing and helped me get to a better product all the time. Because I I don't view this as just a static business. You know, I'm, I'm always trying to see if I can make this a little better, even with something so simple as flour, water, and salt. I have been baking sourdough for honestly several years at this point, and I still make a lot of hockey pucks. 
which taste great, but don't rise at all and have are just super dense. So I admire anyone that can get a good fluff and rise out of, you know, these grain varieties that have different protein levels and, you know, different gluten contents and stuff that can make it very Mm -hmm. challenging. Yes. What have you found with Harvest Ridge and Shepherd's Grain as far as consistency, especially when you switched to Shepherd's Grain? Did you notice that it worked differently or it tasted differently? It's very subtle. It's so subtle, I'm not even sure I could say what what it is. I mean, they're very close. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the ADM product that was coming out of Cheney, the, the Crown Best Bakers, you know, I was buying that at Winco. One of the things that I all that I always want, wanted to use that I never wanted, I never wanted to use bleached grain flour product. So I even when I was buying at Winco with the Crown Best Bakers, I was always using unbleached flour. And so both the Shepherd's Grain and the Crown Best Bakers were unbleached flour. And so and the, they got the same um, enrichment package, you know, which is nice and then few other odds and ends. Uh, so there's a tremendous similarity between the two. Just the, the biggest thing for the ADM product is, you know, it, it, they don't have the chain of command or the chain of control that Shepherd's Grain has. And they were priced the same. So, I mean, um, I was buying the the Winco stuff, the Crown Best Bakers at 21 50 uh, earlier this year, maybe around January or so. And then uh, they raised them up to 22 something. And then they dropped it down to 21. And then bingo, they went, what was things? We got crazy. They went to 29.50, 50% increase in the cost of flour. And so U.S. Foods, the chef supply in Clarkston is where I buy the shepherd's grain. And, you know, they were a few weeks behind but now they're at twenty nine fifty fifty pound bag also. So what I have here, I bought at twenty four dollars. So I've still got fourteen bags of it here, but I'm thinking of just buying a pallet of it. If you buy a pallet of it, will then you buy it direct from Shepherd? Well, I'd, I'd like to. I'd like to talk to the gentleman who's the CEO, or if they have a sales rep or something, I'd, I'd like to talk to somebody about that. Would there be a discount if I bought a whole pallet pallet for forty bags of it? That's actually something we talked about with Jeremy and with Eric, that they are less affected by some of the changing wheat prices internationally that affect some other, I mean, again, I don't know where the ADM one is coming from necessarily, but. Cheney, Cheney is what they told me. Cheney, oh, okay. I got you. Sorry. I, well, that's, that, that, that's where their milling facility is. Okay. But. They were mentioning that that allows them to have some more stability when it comes to pricing so that sometimes they're over that average mark and sometimes they're under, but it means that their customers can rely on their price to be around to the same. Is that something that you have seen or you said it went up from 24 to 29? Yeah, when I started buying the uh, shepherd's grain, it was 24 to 50 about that and the Crown Best Bakers was $22. So it was only a couple, maybe $2.50 difference between them. And then U.S. Foods went to 25 and change, about $25.50. But then ADM, the Crown Best Bakers, just leapfrogged them all. They went from $21.80 to $29.50 in one sweep. 
I think it would make sense for you to contact Shepherd's Grain through their website and see if there would be a way for you to buy direct and to buy a pallet or maybe through a different distribution system. You might be experiencing an increase that the retailer is doing that is more in alignment with retail prices than wholesale prices that you might be able to get as a baker that's buying direct or having some other type of delivery system. I will do that, Colette. Thank you very much. So that's sort of uh, how I how I came to this point in this road. And what's your response from the customers at market? I have had no one's complained yet. I'm people thanking me all the time for, for baking what I do bake. I, I had a woman come up to me at the last market and says, you know, I, I got to tell you, this is the best bread I've ever eaten in my life. And it's just amazing. The sourdough flavor is just off the charts. Please keep doing this. So I'm, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I mean, this, this is a real client testimonial. <laughs> <laughs> it's not bad to toot your own horn when you have a great product. So, <laughs> Did you enjoy the loaf you bought? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's wonderful bread and my family loves it. And it's beautiful as well. These perfectly round, huge loaves of bread. Yeah, I it's try and keep them pretty consistent. They're just a little bit over two pounds, about 2.1 pounds and pretty even diameters and stuff. Sometimes the dough gets away from me a little bit and it gets a little too doughy. You know, it starts rising up out of the baskets that I use and and then I know that I've gone too far with it. It doesn't taste any different. It just looks a little different. Yeah, that looks beautiful. And I think in some ways you're a unique for a market baker to have one product that you're selling. I thought about that. <laughs> I sort of just say, you know, I'm just a one trick pony for now. One of my clients wanted bread bowls. And so I, I messed around with that and invested several hundred dollars getting the way I needed things done. You know, I was trying to find something that I could do like the, the double Dutch ovens that's capturing the steam there. That's where you get the rise from, Allie. So um, I, I had to really dig around to get something small enough to do it. And so it turned out I used one third of the dough to make a bread bowl. And it, it, it looks exactly like a miniature loaf. It looks exactly the same, but it's one third the size. And so you cut the top of it off, hollow it out. I like French onion soup on it. That's my favorite. And you just fill it up with French onion soup. And then when you're done with the soup, you know, you still got that bread that's just soaked in French onion soup. <laughs> that sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. And so then just not buying them anymore. <laughs> And frankly, I'm, I'm just so overwhelmed with trying to keep up with the loaf business. I'm, re I'm really not pushing the other one right now. Right. A lot of work to make a smaller loaf at a smaller price point, I'm imagining. No, I priced it so it was more than the big loaves, too. You know, in terms of if you're looking at the same weights, the, the bread, bread baskets are higher priced because they're a lot more work. So and they're just these little bitty things you're working with that's about the size of a grapefruit. Well, I'm excited to see how things go for you this summer at the markets, both at Moscow Market and I'll be at Orofino Market at the end of July. Oh, great. Yeah, you're there that week. Oh. That'll be really fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm missing Moscow a couple of days in July. I think the first weekend and maybe the third weekend because I'm, I'm on the tier two things with the farmer's market. So I can only go to 17 out of the 26 markets this year. Right. Another Moscow farmer's market policy, a yes. first year vendor is limited to what was called tier two. 
to be able yes. to attend 17 market. And then next year, you'll be able to be tier three and attend the full market season. Great. So Patrick, as you've developed your bread business and really become an artisan baker, what are some of the hiccups or challenges that you experienced along the way? Getting the right equipment and everything. I was just having terrible times, much like what Allie was having with trying to get the loaves to rise. And, you know, I was trying to use a just a conventional Dutch oven and it just doesn't work the same way. And, you know, I was reading through the Tartine book. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, Chad Robertson out of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I was looking through his thing and he was, you know, this is how to do it for home bakers is what he was doing. And so I, I looked and he had one of those Cuisinel double Dutch ovens. And so I figured, you know, if it was good enough for him, then I think I'll go ahead and get some of those. And so I think Jen, Jen bought me like four of them to get me started or something. And then, you know, then I, I needed more because when we got our new wall oven, then I could, I could fit eight of them at a time in there. So, so and just growth things, even with something as simple as, as what I'm doing, you always need more of something like I needed to buy that Hobart mixer. To, so it was just it was easier on my body. I've got a rack of 20, 50 pounds sacks of flour in what I call my bakery. And so it was either that or carry a 50 pound sack from one end of the house to the other end of the house every time I needed one. And then as I started going through the bread faster and faster, that started making a lot more trips to the garage. And so then I just started putting them on a hand truck and getting them over. So I had to get a hand truck and we had to get totes to carry things to the market. And you know, it's just, just things like that. We had to get an easy up for the farmer's market things. And we've got a pretty good logo and everything. And I think that, again, Jan designed the logo, the Crow Bench logo. And I think it's pretty stylish. So I think we have a pretty good presence in the markets. And that was something that was important to me also. A lot of different things. And then, you know, you need, in addition to the totes to carry into the market with, you know, folding chairs to be at the markets and all sorts of other things. And we, we took out an area in our study here that used to have a hot tub in it, but it had a tile floor. So it made a good place for the bakery. So that's, we converted our old hot tub space into the bakery. So just stand small. And sometimes I think about maybe going bigger with it and I'd, I'd have to get a, a real commercial kitchen and all of the rest of that other stuff and I just don't know don't know if I want to go that high yet I'd probably okay. even have to hire some staff <laughs> yeah right scaling to the next level is developing a whole nother set of systems indeed yeah and that also comes with shall we say margin compression if I get a, a commercial kitchen it's probably not going to be on this property so I'm going to start running into a lot more overhead than I have now Right. It's a different enterprise, a different business to go that next yeah. level. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand whether I'm accurately priced with, you know, others. And I mean, like the 150 mile round trip to go to Moscow for us from Orofino. And now with diesel at six something dollars a gallon, you know, that cost just went up by pretty close to 100 percent in the last three or four months. I think you bring up a really good point that... There is a cost to go to market. There's the cost of the equipment that you need to bring your product to market, the booth space, you know, the easy app, the chairs, the tables, everything that's going to make your product look really nice. And then, as you said, there's the transportation cost and the time. And so that's an important consideration for every market that you go to and how much you sell at that market. 
Yeah, every market that we take our truck to, and I mean, the totes that we have, we can get six of them in our little Subaru, but it's, it's press fit. You know, Jan's sitting there with the wicker baskets on her back, just sitting there and can't see anything. So we use the truck more often than not, but that realistically is a dollar a mile. And so it costs us $150 to go to the Moscow market and back. Right, which is quite a few loaves of bread. Well, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so we're trying to figure out ways to do it. If we can, you know, this, the Subaru we have uses about half the fuel that the truck does. And so I can put a trailer hitch on, which I'm going to be doing, put a trailer hitch on the back of the Subaru. And we've got a little ATV trailer that's just perfect for hauling the totes we need to take to market. So we can cut some costs that way and stay alive. <laughs> Absolutely. I was just wondering, you've had folks like Sean who have given you advice and helped make your business what it is today. What advice do you have for other people that are interested in doing a market bakery or a cottage bakery or just interested in home baking like I am? What would your advice be for them to get their foot in the door and yeah, start making a profitable business? Don't hang around as long as I did. Just go do it. <laughs> Just do it. Just do it. Exactly. I think that was exactly the advice of Philip Massey from Bread Riot Bakehouse too. (laughs) Down in Salt Lake City. He's also a market baker and he was like, just do it. Yeah. I mean, I I was giving celery loaves away to everybody for years. You know, everybody said, wow, that's really good bread. It's like, really? But Jan, my wife, was the one who actually got it out in the public and she just put it on the counter that she was using to sell the grass-fed beef we had. And she comes back after the second market she was at, I think, and she says, you know, people are coming over and asking about your bread. They're not asking about the beef. So we took a, a series of classes at a place called Soilborn Farms down in California before we came up here. And it was a really interesting series of lectures and field trips and things like that. And it just gave me a really broad thing in there but. One of the guys was a food marketing guy, and he was in his 70s, and he'd been a food marketing guy his entire career. And he says, I'll tell you something. You put a taste of something in somebody's mouth. If they like it, you've got them as clients from that point on. And he was dead on money. So if you're getting rave reviews from your friends or whoever you may live with, try it. Give it a try. Yeah. So Patrick, where can people find more about you and your market schedule and Crobin? Right now, I'm just selling through the three farmers markets. I can't do the Kenya market now because it falls on the same day as the Moscow market. So I'm just at the, the Kuski market, the Orofino market, and the Moscow market. Those are the only places that don't have any retail sales on it. Like I say, I just started this last 1st of July. Um, so I don't even have a year under myself at this point i'm thinking about that question a lot how, how do i get bigger distribution and uh well like i said if let's say i hit a day in moscow where i actually have 128 loaves and i sell out i'm going to be baking for the next six days to replenish that so the the, the scale comes in with the same thing of availability of more product So that question of scale is one that's really interesting to us. And we're really looking forward to seeing how your business grows over the next several years and where you're at, if you're still at farmer's markets or if you've expanded into retail. 
And, you know, we really appreciate your sharing your story today. Thank you for being here and we'll see you at market on Saturday. For updates on this podcast series and regional artisan grain events, follow Inland Northwest Artisan Grains on Facebook and Idaho Foodworks on Instagram. Our guest profiles and show notes are posted on our website, inwartisangrains.org. New podcast episodes are released every two weeks. After each episode, we would love for you to leave us a review and tell us how we are doing. We value your feedback. Suggestions for future Artisan Grain podcast guests are always welcome. Make sure that you don't miss an episode of the new season by following or subscribing to our podcast on your favorite platform. You can find the Inland Northwest Artisan Grains podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and other major podcasting platforms.